Good morning, church that's on the internet. Um, you know, we are, we are live streamed now, so um, we regularly hear from folks who are, particularly from our church family, who are traveling. Um, uh, we'll hear from someone who'll say, oh, I was in Boston or I was in, you know, outer Mongolia and I watched you on the internet at four in the morning or something. No, I've not, I've not actually heard from anyone from outer Mongolia. That was a fallacious statement. Uh, we are talking about Matthew chapter 9 and have been for a little bit. If you uh, have the opportunity, you have your Bible with you. Um, I want to open that up. If it's your, uh, your device, uh, just point it at Matthew chapter 9. Um, we're beginning uh, in around verse 13, or about verse 9, I mean. So Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. Um, a little setup as you're finding it. Remember that uh, we've been watching as Matthew is trying to help us understand who Jesus is and that Jesus is in fact God. There's no question in Matthew that that's what he's attempting to do. He's letting, he, he's letting us walk a certain sort of logical path. And he's, as he's, watching, as he's uh, retelling the story of Jesus, he's telling it in an order that will help us to understand that path. Remember, it starts out with how Jesus is connected to David and David's family and that he meets all the messianic requirements in the beginning of the book of Matthew. But now when we've moved in tier two, starting in about Matthew chapter five, he starts to tell us about Jesus' actions. And we need to watch both, both the words and the actions of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter five, remember, Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses did. He sits down, which is how kings speak. They sit extra, uh, they speak ex cathedra from the seat. We still use that, that Latin term today. It's a, it's a, a term used primarily for papal statements. They were ex cathedra. They were made from the seat, meaning from that seat of authority or power. He begins to teach and he turns the entire world upside down. The, the, the Pharisaic world, the Jewish world, the, the teachings of the first century, Probably we need to recognize that it's not just Judaism, but it's all of the world at the time, is, is in, the, in the manner of understanding that God requires certain activities to appease his anger and frustration with us so that we might receive his mercy. So it's a buy mercy from God sort of a sign. How, here's where you can buy mercy from God. And so in the, in the religions of the day, the pagan and the Christian or, and the Jewish religion, there's a sense of a deal being made with God or in terms of paganism with the gods. The pagans were making sacrifices and offerings. It's always been the case with paganism. Paganism buys God's favor or stops God's anger with its sacrifices. That's the way paganism has always worked. Judaism coming back from Babylon. This is for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible. Judaism at this point has come, has been back from Babylon for about six centuries, but they're still responding to that. Prior to having been taken off into Babylon, they had been idol worshippers, and God has said, "I am not putting up with this. You can go off to Babylon and learn your lesson." So they come back, and the lesson they think they have understood is that if they don't behave, if they don't do things absolutely correctly, God is going to chase them off again. God's going to be angry with them, and they need to appease Him in the same manner. And get this piece, because it's real important to what we're talking about today. They need to appease God in the same manner that the pagans appease their gods. So they haven't really left idolatry. They've just transferred idolatry to God. Do you get it? They, they are using the same practices. Now, the practices are interesting. 
Because it's not really the sacrifices so much. There are regular sacrifices in the Jewish sort of uh, uh, understanding of how, the, how the, the year cycles. So there are regular offerings and sacrifices. But the sacrifices are there to point you to God's sacrifice. The sacrifices are simply a representation of what God will do. But that's gotten lost, and they think there's some meaning and some value in the blood of the Lamb and those kinds of things. We look at the blood of the Lamb from this lens, looking back through the cross, and we say, oh, the blood of the Lamb refers to Jesus. Remember, they haven't seen the cross. They haven't had anybody explain Jesus' sacrifice. The Lamb of God is a new concept in terms of it being applied to Jesus. And so they're not ready to take that on. So when they arrive at that sermon on the mountain, a big gathering of people are there. Jesus says, the moment you recognize your spiritual poverty, the kingdom of God is yours. Nobody, else, nobody understands. In fact, I bet nobody even likes that statement. It's a little upsetting to us. It's probably made a few of you a little uncomfortable today. But I didn't say it. Jesus did. Blame Him. Blessed. Oh, how blessed. It's amazing. It's awesome when you finally recognize your spiritual poverty because the kingdom of God is yours. When you recognize your need, God steps into the situation omnipotent God, all-powerful God steps into the situation. And when all power steps into your recognition of need, solution has arrived. You get that? It's not like you need incremental growth in the power of God. When God's power arrives, it's all-powerful. It's God, for goodness sakes, who's come into your, your recognition of your need. So if you're sitting here today and you're going, all I know about myself is I'm a spiritual mess, it's a good place to start. It's not where you want to finish. You're going to grow through your, through your interaction with God. There's going to be development of who you are. And, and, the, and certainly the Sermon on the Mount shows that progression of, of development. But it starts out by saying, look, as soon as you recognize you need me, I'm there and you're in. Saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Jesus goes on and he describes the whole world sort of topsy-turvy. He describes the things that they're doing. He said, you think that you're doing a great thing by doing X? Nope, you're not really doing much. He said, really, you need to do this. And he starts to raise the value, raise the importance. You think that you're doing a great thing by giving your wife an article of divorce. You give her a little piece of paper that says, hey, she burned the toast, she's out, I'm getting a new one. And you think you're doing really good things because now she can prove that she actually got a divorce but you're making it very difficult for her to move forward. There's no one else who's going to want to marry her at all. He goes on and on and he says, look, what your problem is, you have no compassion. You have no concern. And he carries through the Sermon on the mountain. He stands up. And as he stands up, this big crowd's gathered around him. And all of a sudden, like the Red Sea, the crowd begins to part. You have to understand that's what, exactly what happened because there's a voice from the back of the crowd Shouting, unclean, unclean, unclean. Desperate for an answer that no one else has. He, he puts himself at risk of being stoned by this crowd who's been so blown away by Jesus, they don't even think about picking up rocks apparently. And they, he starts making his way through the crowd and the voice gets louder, unclean, unclean, unclean. And he arrives at the presence of Jesus. This man who's, who's 
beaten to death or nearly by leprosy. Leprosy has just destroyed his, his flesh. People who have been a long time in leprosy lose, lose digits first and eyes and they just, they're, they're are, their body reeks of the death that's coming. And he gets to Jesus. And instead of just saying, yeah, you want to be healed? Great, be healed. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. We can do this at a distance. Be healed. The Bible says Jesus lays his hands on him. Jesus touches him. Because this man had been starved for human touch ever since the declaration of leprosy. And Jesus goes to the point of the man's need and he meets him there and he touches him. And he heals him. And this massive crowd of people see someone returned from the dead. Because leprosy is a death sentence. And he begins to make his way down the hill. He's moving towards Capernaum. As he gets near to Capernaum, up walks a Roman centurion. Now, if lepers are unclean because of, as they thought, the choice of God, centurions are unclean on their own. They were born Gentiles. And now they're, they're, they're mercenaries for the hated Romans, occupiers of the land. And a centurion walks up to Jesus. And Jesus says, What do you want? The man says, I have a servant who's ill and he needs somebody to help. And Jesus said, well, I'll go with you to your home. Nobody should do that. You shouldn't be going into a Gentile's home. The Gentile recognizes Jesus will get in trouble for going to his home and says, no, that's not necessary. You can do this from here. You can, you can do this long distance. Just say the word. I understand that you have authority and power on the earth, so say the word. And Jesus says, okay, he's healed. And the man goes home and finds, him, finds his servant healed. And Jesus says, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. This is fantastic faith. The kind of faith that recognizes the authority of God on the earth. And Matthew continues to build the story of who Jesus is and the authority and the power of Jesus. In Capernaum that night, he heals everyone in the village. Crosses and he heals a demon-possessed man. Controls the, the wind and the waves on the crossing. He comes back. And after building Jesus' reputation, Matthew has built Jesus' reputation and he's strengthened our understanding of who he is, we arrive here at this point in the chapter and everything goes off the, off the rails. Chapter 9, Jesus is walking by the, 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 the tax collector's booth. It's the IRS office. Um, this week... I got to interact with the tax collector. No, I paid my taxes back in April. I paid your taxes this week. Last week, we had the joy of sending the city more money than I make for permits. Okay, the fact that we were waiting for these for so long, it was a little galling that it was so expensive, but it was like I'd been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. It was like, okay, price to pay. I paid it. You paid it. God paid it. This week, we got a note from another element of the uh, sort of universal government around us. And they said, oh, we know you have a permit. 
but we've never looked at your plans. They're not, they're not able to stop us because we do have a permit. We've not looked at your plans. So the architect called them, said, hey, uh, you know, this, this, this whole thing was built out from the beginning. They paid the full price for both buildings at the beginning. They, they laid all the pipe at the beginning. So we really don't need to talk to you. And they said, oh, yes, you need to talk to us. So the architect sent somebody down. They went to the office and said, look, here's all the information you wanted. We don't really need to talk to you. And they said, oh, yes, you need to talk to us. It's like, really? So we finally get the, the, the determinative letter back, or email, actually. So what is it that they're, that's, that's sticking in this cycle? It's like, you know, the, the hamster on the wheel here conversation. We can't look at your plans to determine whether or not you need to talk to us until you pay us $1,790. Just stop and think about that for a sec. We call them fees. But they are paying for government. They are taken from you. Therefore, they are taxes. Put a label on it if you want, but it's still taxes. So I got to interact with the person. I went to the office personally to deliver, this, to deliver this check. I stood there at the desk with the person who's collecting the taxes. And I said, so what's this paying for? For us to look at the plans. So it's just like a magical formula for how much you're going to charge me. There's no relationship between what you're actually doing and the fee. Well, it's not a magical formula. It's our fee. But how do you arrive at that fee? Silence. See? My voice now. It's a magical formula. And next to the fee schedule that she just handed me, which I hadn't seen before, is a little tiny note that says, plus, gotta love that, District fees. So I said, do we know what those are going to be? To which she replied, no. I said, so it's a magical formula too. I have to tell you, this is kind of confessional at the moment. I was not a happy camper. I came back to the office and Deborah told me to go to lunch. I needed to eat. It might help me out. <laughs> you got to love people in your life who will tell you, you just need to go get some lunch. You know that Snickers commercial? You've kind of moved on to Cranky now. And while I was at lunch, God talked to me and kind of talked to me about what we're talking about today. First, he reminded me that I was not writing a check from my personal account. I was writing a check against his account. So it was kind of like, what are you whining about? I'm paying this bill. <laughs> and I got this. And he began to remind me of the business we're in. I had been hearing from the Lord for a while now about widows and orphans. 
just this growing sort of whisper. You know, you hear whispers from God, right? Do you, you recognize those things when they come? Even, even secular people hear whispers from God. Even people who have no interest in God hear whispers from God. The Holy Spirit does that to them. They don't know what to call it, how to deal with it. But they hear. And I had been getting this sort of growing whisper from God. What's Grace Point doing to fulfill true worship? Because the New Testament says true worship is to care for the widows and the orphans. And obviously I recognize that that's an expanding class. It's not, it's not defined as only widows and only orphans. It's simply describing those people who have need. So I thought, oh, okay. And it's just been growing inside me. So I'm reading through things that have been filtering into my email box for a while now. And I get to an article from a woman. And her, the title of the article captured me. It said, we don't need more coffee bars. I'm thinking, wait a second. We're kind of talking about a cafe sort of feel in our, our auditorium. Mary Janice, we need to talk about this. I'll send you the article. We're talking about sort of a, a, a snack area, bar, snack bar space. Sure, people need that fellowship and nothing like holding something in your hand to make you feel like you can protect yourself if somebody else is talking to you, right? I, I, being the sanguine person, I understand that I, I, have, I, I scare people sometimes, but I also know that if they have a, a cupcake in their hand, they feel like they have something to defend themselves with. And so the article starts out telling this woman's story. And she says, I lost my husband. After a long, painful, difficult bout with cancer. And then she goes on to continue telling the story. She said, I have nothing against coffee bars and couches on the platform and Lights, shows, and all. I have nothing against all that stuff, but what I really need to find at church is Jesus. So you can have all that stuff, but don't let it get in the way of Jesus. Don't let that become a substitute for Jesus. And her plea was, leaders in the church, when somebody says leaders in the church, I usually read the rest of that sentence. Leaders in the church, when you start planning what you should be thinking about and what you should be doing, don't forget People like me are there every week. And all we really want, all we really need, I mean, we don't mind, this is her words, we don't mind the coffee bar, we're fine with it, but it, it can't be a substitute for Jesus. And so I'm at my lunch, and all of this, you know, Jesus saying, the whisper of, hey, what are you doing for widows and orphans? That's really true worship. And this lady's story pounding through my head after I've just had this intense conversation with some lady who I'm really glad she thought I was a contractor and not the pastor. <laughs> There's something about my big meat hook hands and bald head that, looks, that says contractor to people. I get the contractor question every time I go to Home Depot. Every single time. 
So I'm pleased that I'm incognito there. Thank you, Jesus. But while I'm eating lunch, God starts building an argument. And the question comes, what are you doing for widows and orphans? Now, not that that wasn't enough, but my phone takes over my radio in my car every once in a while. Does that happen to anybody else or do I have a haunted car? Good. Thank you very much. I have one fellow out there who joins me. Literally, my phone will just suddenly turn something on. And it came on with a church podcast that I regularly listen to from a church back east. And the pastor and his associate and friend start talking about, you want to guess? True worship is taking care of widows and orphans. And so I listened all the way through it. I usually just kind of catch pieces of it as I'm driving around. I stopped and listened. I actually sat outside under a tree listening to the rest of it. And what they were basically saying was what God had been saying and growing in me. And you know how that whisper from God starts to get supporters? And suddenly a crowd is not whispering anymore. It's screaming in your ear. And the $1,790 to the tax collector which was God's money anyway, became less important than the way I had interacted with the person on the other side of the counter. It was kind of a reset. Now, I'm not sure where it's all going, but it's very interesting to find us where we are today in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we find Jesus walking by the tax collector's booth. He turns to the young man who's there and he says, You, follow me. And Matthew Levi, the author of the book, telling his own story, simply says he got up from the tax collector's booth and he followed Jesus. Now Matthew's reaction is interesting. Because when Matthew decides to follow Jesus, his first act of following is to throw a party. I think Matthew's a social kind of a guy. I think Matthew also recognizes that he is in fact interacting with a bunch of people who need to know Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus goes to Matthew's house and it it uses a very interesting word. It says, while he reclined at the table. So you got to remember who we're dealing with. This is first century dinner party. Remember, we've talked about this before. They sit on the floor, leaning on cushions and resting on the person next to them. It tends to be that their feet are out behind them. That's how Mary could come and wash Jesus' feet while he's at a dinner party. They're not tucked under the table. They're tucked out behind them. Think about it if you're leaning on a large cushion. Back in the 70s, we used to have a lot of bean bags. Those of you who are old like me, you know, you remember those things, right? I had a big green, like lime green bean bag in my room. That thing shouted, you can't sleep in here. It was, it's obnoxious when you think about it, but it was kind of that fake leather naugahyde stuff. 
And after you laid on it for a little while, little white beans would start filling up your room one at a time as they popped out of the seams of this thing. But when you laid on it, you, you rested yourself half on it. Those of you who are too young to understand this, ask somebody over 45. Okay? If you, if you have somebody in your life, just ask them. You, you've probably seen them. They're in sort of the relics section of the used clothes department in the, uh, at, at Good, Good, uh, Goodwill. You'll find one there occasionally that's not leaked out all its beans. But you lean on it like this. You keep your, your good hand free. So most people are right-handed, so it became the tradition that you leaned on your left. And as you leaned on the left, there was another guy there who was leaning on his left. And so you were, you were getting very close and very intimate. You were right in close to where they were. Knees are bent. Feet are sticking out behind. This way. It's almost Heisman-ish. Never mind. <laughs> leaning on that, Jesus is reclining at the table. And this is the description. He's reclining at the table with tax collectors spit that word out as it comes, and sinners. He's reclining at the table with tax collectors and known sinners, people who have completely disregarded the rules and laws of the Pharisees and the scribes. They are bundled all together. The the Jews may be worse than the Gentiles. They're bundled all together in this classification of people who don't care about what God is doing in their life. So they're just sinners. All of them bound for the hot place, placed on the express. They're sinners. And so Jesus is at dinner reclining. The word is describing his action. He's intimately connected, reclining with tax collectors and sinners. He's in this very close relationship. He's bound to them, connected with them, leaning in to them. And they into him. That, that picture of Jesus reclining is the first observation out of the story for me. Jesus reclines. He connects. He becomes intimate with tax collectors and sinners. Folks like us. Jesus is not ashamed or frightened by our past, even if it was 10 minutes ago. He draws into us. He doesn't separate from us. He comes closer to us. He doesn't run away from us. Jesus is drawn to those who are in desperation. It was true of the leper. It was true of the centurion. It was true of the demon-possessed man. It was true of the disciples who were frightened in the boat. It was true of everybody in Capernaum. It was true of the man they lowered through Peter's roof. It was true, it was true, it was true, and it's true for you and it's true for me. Jesus isn't repelled by us. He's drawn to us. Because you have to recognize every tax collector in that room, every rejected sinner in that room was one of his children whom he had come to rescue to take home to dad. It's a relationship. It's personal. It's connected. He's drawn and he reclines with the tax collectors and the sinners. It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the household, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. If you are Matthew and all of your friends, the only people who will take you in, are in the classification of tax collectors and sinners, 
and you meet Jesus and it transforms who you are, the heart of Matthew says, let's have an evangelistic dinner party. Some of us need to do that. Let's have an evangelistic dinner party. Let's invite our friends. Let's invite all the guys that we know to meet this guy because this guy makes a difference. And when he comes, Jesus doesn't ask for a different table. Jesus could have sat at a table with the disciples alone, like sort of the wedding party at a wedding. You know, you go to the wedding, the wedding party's all up there. They're all getting food. You're still starving. There's like 400 people waiting to eat and 12 people eating. That's the picture, right? Jesus could have separated himself, but instead he mingled with and leaned into the very people that the rest of his culture despised. Now Matthew has built up Jesus saying, this is who God is. This guy has the authority of God. He can control creation. He can control demons. He can heal men who are dying. He can do all of these things. And this is how he behaves. He doesn't run from his family. He doesn't run from those who are ill. He comes as close as possible to them. He gets in close to them, leaning on them, leaning in, feeling their presence, helping them as they eat, sharing food, probably actually passing food right into the hands of these unclean human beings, food that has actually been touched by them, therefore making him unclean. Oh, what a disaster. Oh, what a wonderful gift. God in heaven sitting at a table with tax collectors and sinners like you and me. He says, this is God and this is what he's like. He is clearly God and here's what he's like. Amazing. He's, again, this... Maybe Matthew should just be the tie-dye book because it's so upsetting to the way things are done. He's, turtle, he's turning the tables on everything people think they know. Observation number two. I promise there are not ten observations. I'm not telling you how many. I just want you to be happy when I'm done. Observation number two. Jesus came to call sinners. He came, his reason for coming, his reason to get there. But when Jesus heard this, heard them complaining about the fact that he's eating with these guys, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to get you guys. I didn't come to call the righteous. Now, what's interesting is the Pharisees say, yeah, yeah, we're the righteous. We're the separate. And unfortunately, the church in our culture today has a lot of that appearance. Unclean, unclean, let's not touch that. So I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. I came to interact with these very people. I came to get these guys. Jesus, God, is like this. The God of the universe came to actually do this, to go to dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners, to engage with people who are broken, who are messed up and are trying to find their way, who recognize their spiritual poverty and recognize He's the answer. That's why He came. That's who He is. What defines God? Dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners. You want to understand God? Dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners. I didn't come to get you guys, you righteous Pharisees who don't think you need me. I didn't come for you. I came for these guys. You know why? Because these guys recognize their spiritual poverty. And you're not even ready for that yet. Jesus' instructions to those Pharisees still apply. In the middle of that statement, 
I came to call tax collectors and sinners. In the middle of that statement, Jesus stops and says to them, go. Go and learn. When Jesus says, go and do something, we probably should perk up our ears. We probably should pay attention and, and and not assume that instruction is only for them, but assume that we might need some of this instruction too. Go and learn what this means. Go and figure this out. Before you guys move any further, before you make judgments about what I'm doing anymore, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's all through the the Scripture. There's a great passage in the Psalms where God is speaking and He says to the people, If I were hungry, would I come to you? I don't, I don't need to eat bulls and lambs or drink the blood of goats. I don't need these things. I'm not hungry. You're not feeding me. I wouldn't come to you if I was hungry. This is not about you appeasing me. This is not about you changing my perceptions. This is about you understanding my mercy. This is about you understanding the sacrifice that waits. This is about you seeing in the future what I will do for you, not what you're doing for me. It's always coming back to this idea. This is what throws everything into a whirlwind. This is the real difference. Everything else is paganism. If you're manipulating God, it's paganism. It's not Christianity. It's not Judaism. It is not how God operates. God is bigger than our ability to to manipulate Him. We're not the puppet masters and God the puppet. We're not in charge of Him. We're not controlling Him. We're not even changing His opinions about things. In the room are publicans and sinners and Pharisees and disciples and Jesus loves them all and they're all His children. They just don't all recognize it the same way. Publicans and the sinners think they're outside of God's interest. Pharisees think they're in control of God's interest and the disciples are just confused right in the middle. What the disciples have over everybody else is they've decided we'll follow them until we figure it out. That's clearly all we're doing. We think the end is what God is doing and it's the process that God is actually doing. We think that arriving in heaven is the ultimate goal. Well, yeah, that's the ultimate end. But the walk with God is the ultimate goal of the day. If that's all there is. That's what it's about. It's, it's about following Jesus. And so a guy who just found out that he could follow Jesus goes home, throws a big party for his friends who don't think they can, and says, hey, he's willing to hang out with us. He just come for us. He, he just wants us to follow. And we don't, get the, we don't get the evangelism report for the day. You know, we don't get the, the report that says, hey, uh, 35 people were baptized after that dinner party. We get no report. But we get a picture of who God is. Matthew has clearly been telling us this is who God is. Look, 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 look. And this is what he's like. So I ask you, do you understand what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I 
I, I was dragged into a glimpse of it this week, and I think it was dragged into that glimpse in preparation for what I was doing here this morning. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So you guys, you struggle at being good. And it's not bad to be good. It can't be bad to be good. They're different from each other. But that's great. But it's your heart I'm after, and mercy requires a change of heart. You can behave good and be unmerciful, and that's not what I'm looking for. You can behave righteously and be unrighteous. And that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a heart that actually aligns with mine. I'm looking for a heart that runs parallel with me. Because I sit on a seat enthroned in mercy. I place the covenant between the two of us inside the ark beneath the seat, also covered by mercy. That's where I will meet you, Moses, above that mercy seat. When you come in on the Day of Atonement, sprinkle some of the blood on the mercy seat. Because I desire mercy. I desire to be merciful to you, and I desire that you would learn how to be merciful to others. I desire that you would learn to have my heart. I would desire that you would look at your friends and your neighbors and the people you interact with and ask what would Jesus do and what would the merciful thing in this moment be? What would life be like if I changed? You know what's crazy about mercy is mercy requires an antecedent. There has to be somebody to be merciful to. And there has to be someone in a position, some sort of a, a, of a, a position that, that has granted them the opportunity to be merciful. Mercy requires two individuals at least. It requires a transformed heart and a person in need. Mercy requires someone. You can't be really be merciful to a building. But you can be merciful to a tax collector across the counter from you. It's just doing their job. You can be merciful to your neighbor whose life might be just coming apart. They don't, even, they don't even have the time to think about mowing their lawn. You can be merciful to somebody you see on the news. And you see what's going on and you see some horrible activity done by some person and you realize you have to be crazy to do that and you have to be a different kind of crazy to be that far. And you can throw the prayer out there into that situation for them and for their family and for the victim. You see both sides on every event and every experience are God's children. Both sides are trying to figure it out. Both sides are struggling to understand what is right and what should be done. And we as believers have an opportunity to step in with the perspective of God and bring mercy. And I don't know what the specific application is for you. I don't know what the specific application is for the individual experience, for the politics of our world, for the politics of the United States. We've got a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. I don't see much mercy. I see a lot of hate and anger. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Quit trying to earn my love by flagellating yourself into obedience. 
instead fall on the rock that is Jesus. Be broken in a way that is transformative so that your heart exudes what my heart exudes. Moses said, Lord God, I want to see your face. God said, you can't. Can't see me and live. Sorry. But I'm going to tuck you into a rock and I'm going to pass by and I'll reveal myself to you. And as, as God passes by Moses that day, Moses tucked in a rock, covered by the hand of God. Crazy, crazy, hard to imagine. I am the Lord God, bringing mercy to a thousand generations. Let's pray.